Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to turn our attention to your word. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would open us up, that we might understand what it says, that we might be convicted to change, and that you might empower us to live a new life. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, it's, uh, it was pretty heavy reading, wasn't it? Did you manage to make it through? Thank you for your reading, Jeff. It was very clear and helpful. I think it left us with the appropriate gravity uh, at the end of it. Uh, we want to try and make sense of it today. Uh, I'll start with a, a question, though, that probably takes us in a slightly different direction to where the reading finished off. I want to ask you, how do you know when you love someone? How do you know when you love someone? Uh, has anyone got any suggestions from the floor? How, how do you know? Yeah, Nelson. Yeah, so you, you miss them when you're not with them, you want to be with them all the time? Yep. How else do you know? Willing to sacrifice for them. Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah. Other suggestions? How do you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So you, you care for them and you want to help them. You really want to be involved in their lives. I, I think, I think when, you, when you really love someone, uh, you start to be concerned about the things that they're concerned about. Uh, your heart starts to beat in accord with their heart. So if, if they really hate uh, Westerns, for example, Western movies, you don't sort of pick that as the date movie, do you? Yeah? You, you kind of learn, actually, if I love you, I won't force you to go and see whatever it is, or 27 Dresses or something like that, which go in the opposite direction. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice something of me to bring myself more in accord with the line of your heart. D- does that make sense? So, so our hearts will start to line up when we really start to love uh, someone. So I want to think a little bit about this idea of love. Uh, open up um, Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, we're going to go to verse 1 uh, of chapter 5. So it'd be great if you can have it open uh, in front of you there. Isaiah chapter 5 uh, and verse 1. I, I wanted to start by, by having a look at, um, at this first verse here. It says here, Isaiah speaking, says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Uh, two, two things to, uh, to observe right at the start, just off the bat. First of all, Isaiah calls God the mighty one enthroned in majesty upon the... Is that, is that what he calls God? I just want you to note here, he calls God, I will sing for the one I love. The way he refers to God is the one I love. It might not be your natural language, and I'm not actually seeking today to re-engineer the way you talk about God, but I want you to just observe the way Isaiah speaks of God. God is for him the one I love. If you were to say, the one I love is how would you complete that sentence? You might say your kids. Hopefully your spouse would get a look in there somewhere if you, if you have one. You, you might say, my beautiful dog. For Isaiah, the one that he loves is the living God. I think that's worth noting before we rush into the rest of the passage. The one I love. And I think the reason that he's able to use an address... What, what, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. I just want to make another note here as we start. He could have just said, I'm going to write down some heavy words 
in a prophecy and I'm going to email them to you. Well, he wouldn't have emailed them, obviously, but you, you get the idea. He could have said, I'm just going to commit these to paper and you better, you better pay attention. What he does instead is, it seems the overflow of his heart in love for God is expressing, expressing itself in song. That's unusual, isn't it? I will sing for the one I love. Well, that makes sense. We often would like to sing for the one I love. You might steal somebody else's words to do so, but we'll sing for the one that we love. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love. A song, a song about his vineyard. And we're going to spend a lot of time today thinking about that vineyard and its nature. But God is the one he loves and he chooses the medium of song. I think both of them are quite remarkable uh, as we start today. So let's, let's have a look at, uh, at this vineyard uh, in verses 1 and 2. My loved one, again, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and clay, cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Well, what are we observing here? Well, the first thing I think that we must observe as, as we read here is uh, it seems that God is establishing a vineyard in a place, a permanent place that has great potential. It was well chosen. It was established wonderfully well. And the only reason you build a watchtower is because you're not going to leave it. I'm committed here. It's well situated. I'm looking for long-term outcomes. In fact, before he plans, he also digs what? It says he cut out a wine press. What's that anticipating? Fruit. Uh, certainly enough to make wine. There's an anticipation of fruitfulness and anticipation he's digging in here. This is a place that he'll commit himself to. So is he a permanent place that has great potential? Again, I've just struck as I've been reflecting on this, this imagery. It's picked up in the New Testament and we had that in our second reading. But here's the thing. I want you to think about why does God choose for the metaphor, the way he's going to speak, to speak of a vineyard. It's a plant for enjoyment, not just subsistence. Say that a different way. It's enjoyable, not just filling up your tummy, right? He could have said, I planted a very flat field of wheat. Are you with me? Instead, he chose a beautiful hill and he plants a vine on it to make wine. I, it, it, there's something about the nature of God that says his people are supposed to be a delight. Can you see this? Not just we functionally relate God to his people. Just get on with it and do the thing that you're supposed to do so I can be filled. It's actually that I might delight in you, that I might enjoy you, that you might be rich and abundant. Again, we can just miss these details because the idea of vineyard is so familiar. I think it's completely unnecessary to choose a vineyard and it reveals something about the beauty of God's heart and his longing for his people. So God did all of this. And what does it say? It says at the end of verse 2, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Uh, apparently the word here is stinky. It yielded stinky fruit. Stuff that was absolutely unfit for eating, was corrupted, was poor, 
all of this lavish grace was expressed and the outcome, the fruitfulness, was stinky fruit, rotten fruit. No produce worthy of all the, all the care that's been lavished on it. Let's keep going. Have a look at verses 3 to 4. So everyone's listening, and I'm sure that they were liking the start of the song. And then that, that, that end of verse 2 comes in, and they're going, oh, hang on, that didn't sound so good. And now, now, it says in verse 3, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah. Yes, we're listening to you singing a song. Yes, judge between me and my vineyard. God is speaking, not Isaiah. Judge between me, the Lord, and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? What's the answer to that, incidentally? That's right. Nothing more could have been done. There was a watchtower. It was planted with choice vines. It was on a fertile hill. Nothing more could have been done for the vineyard. And so God is saying, judge between me and my vineyard. Who's to blame? The idea is, pretty clear. When I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? For good grapes, why did it yield only bad? The choice is, people who are listening to this song, you be the judge. You've heard the setup, be the judge. What more could have been done? And the answer is, nothing. So you be the judge. Who's to blame? Is it the farmer or is it the vineyard? Who's to blame? And they say, uh, I don't think it's a trick question. I think I get what the answer to that is. Uh, I know who's to blame. It's the vineyard. It's got nothing to do with the planter. But if I say it's the vineyard, I'm the vineyard, aren't I, in this story? So you be the judge and you condemn yourselves as you see it so clearly. Do you remember Nathan and David? Uh, David in the Old Testament is one of the kings and he commits adultery and he gets told a story afterwards by a prophet. And David sees straight away the injustice. And he says, this is absolutely wrong. And Nathan says to him, you are the man. We have a great ability to see with clarity other people's sin. And in this case, God's pre God presents them with their own and they're self-condemned. We have done wrong. Have a look at verses 5 to 7. What will happen because of the unfruitfulness of this choice vineyard? What will happen? Have a look at verses 5 to 7. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down the wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So this wonderful song that's being set up, all of a sudden, it's all unveiled. Do you want to know, what's the vineyard? We're listening, Isaiah. The vineyard sounds like it's in trouble. Well, the vineyard's you, nation of Israel. It's you, people of Judah and Jerusalem. What was the fruit that they had failed to yield? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It says that uh, he looked for what was right, but he found a riot. He looked for decency, but he found despair. So as he looked at the nation, there was riot, not right. There was despair and not decency. 
God saw his nation, his precious nation, and what they had done is wasted the grace that he had lavished on them. They turned inward and in selfishness and sin had grieved God. Now we might be surprised here. Uh, He looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Uh, There's a sense in which the whole nation is guilty. All of you are guilty, not, not you. Okay, sorry. But speaking to the nation, you're all guilty. And for some of us, the idea of corporate guilt, uh, that is, you and I are guilty together, the idea of corporate guilt may shock us. But God's actually saying, I'm looking at this nation of mine. I'm not just looking at one of you. I'm not just looking at one of you. I'm looking at all of you. I'm saying, together you have become corrupt. Now, for us, we want to go, oh, um, sorry, uh, God, I know, I know you're kind of talking to everyone, but did you see what I did? Like, I'm, I'm kind of okay. So they, I agree with you, they're pretty terrible. But, you know, just have mercy on me. And what God's saying is, actually, there aren't any people that are just me at some level in my nation. I'm looking at you and collectively, you've fallen short of this holy standard I had for you as a nation. You have let me down. You have corporately, together, failed in the plan to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Well, from there, it doesn't get much better. I'm sure you heard that in the reading, didn't you? So what's a woe? What's a woe? Now, a woe is essentially an announcement of failure, an announcement of coming condemnation, an announcement that you're you're in trouble. It's a declaration. And so we're going to see a stack of woes. Did you see that word? It just turns up again and again and again in the remainder of this chapter. And God is going to announce woes on the people. As we think about their woes, I want to hear a little bit carefully the people that God turns to and think that at times we, we might see people like that around us. Uh, I think, as an aside, let's step away from Israel many, many thousands of years ago and think about us, just for a second, sitting here in our seats this morning. I think that at times it can be tempting for us to envy the world around us. So you and I could be tempted to think, wow, the people who are... Well, let's have a look at two temptations that we might have. Um, The people around us who are making more money than us. And we can think, man, they're making a stack of money. I wish I was getting on as well as they are. We, We can long to be on a par with the people around us. And look, we know this is keeping up with the Joneses, don't we? Somebody gets a brand new four-wheel drive and you think, oh, all of a sudden my car's looking a little bit older. Uh, quite literally, this happened to us, people next door to us. I mean, it's wonderful for me. Uh, the church built our house, so it's not my house. It's good. But the people next door to us, our next-door neighbours, uh, they're looking around just like regular people, and the people next door to them are building. And they started building a fairly big house, right, which is cool. No problems with that. They started building a big house. And they looked at the next-door neighbours and they thought, Actually, the next-door neighbor's house is a bit taller. We'll put a second story on our house. They had a single-story plan, and now they have a double-story house. It's pretty amazing. We can get to the point where we envy our neighbors, and we want to be like them, and we think at some level maybe, maybe life will be just that bit better if we can have some more. So we can envy them in gains. I think that we can at times, uh, if, uh, if you, 
Maybe no one will envy these people looking up here, I'm, I'm suspecting. But uh, well, I, I was trying to work out what exactly would be the picture for party people. So let's, let's just think about that for a while. Um, for some of us, you might have been following Jesus for a long time. And you might have made some decisions where you said, I'm actually going to choose a level of morality that's different to my friends. Some of you familiar with this? It's going to be a level of morality that's different to my friends. And you might see what they do, and you might think it's, at some level, that looks pretty fun. That looks pretty fun. I, I think at some level I'm missing out. By having chosen to follow Jesus and live a life of holiness, I'm missing out in some way. And look, I'll, I'll tell you this seriously. I, I, I know of two marriages, Christian marriages, in inverted commas, uh, where the wives left the husbands because their girlfriends, who were non-Christians, were having such fun that they felt they were missing out. And these aren't people who are three or four degrees of separation removed from me. These are people that I know as my friends. Two separate marriages where the wives walked out because they were envious of the life of freedom that their girlfriends had, their unmarried girlfriends. Now, that's a tragedy, isn't it? God speaks to the aggressive desire for financial gain and for the obsession with party people in this passage here. Have a look with me at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The insatiable capitalist is going down. Not only was it greed that was terrible, but they're actually taking the God-given inheritance away from God's people. God's precious land. You have a part of the promised land. What happens when someone buys your land off you is you lose your inheritance. So how are these people getting rich? They're taking poor people's houses and stealing their inheritance in God's land. Tragedy. God says, woe to the insatiable capitalists. In fact, he goes on and says uh, in verse 9, The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. You're right. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, I know how those measurements work out. Here's what happens. You take seed and you sow it. What's the seed supposed to do if you sow it well? Multiply. Here's what happens. Those measurements, you sow 160 kilos of seed, you're going to reap 16 kilos of food. It's reverse tithing. God's going to impoverish you because of your desire to make yourself rich. It's incredible. Woe to those who get up early in the morning, verse 11, to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine. They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. The party people, they're going down. Verse 13, therefore my people will go into exile. For lack of understanding, those of high rank will die of hunger. The common people will be parched with thirst. Here are people who are insatiable for land, insatiable for alcohol, but they are famished of knowledge of God. More land, more beers, no God. It says, 
Who will be the winner? What is the only appetite that won't be satisfied? The grave. Not only will people go into exile, which is lose the promised land. Have a look at verse 14. Therefore death expands its jaws and opens its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So my people will be brought low. Can you see this? Insatiable appetites, but the only appetite that ever wins when we pursue sinful gain is death. It'll swallow everyone. No one gets more property. No one gets more beers. Everyone will meet their maker in death. Have a listen to who is lifted up, even here, in verses 15. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. What's going to happen is proud and arrogant people will be brought low, and the only person lifted up will be God in his holiness and his majesty as he shows that these false choices can't stand. They won't last. So even as we look enviously at times, Lord have mercy, save us from that envy. But even as we look in envy, here's what you can know. Everyone who lifts themselves up will be brought low. And those who humble themselves, God will lift up. God will prevail. God wins. God wins. There's a second set of woes here. More woes, as if that wasn't enough. There are more woes. These woes are announced to uh, an interesting group of people. Uh, this is an ad for um, ethics classes in schools. Here's what it says. Mum, why is it okay to kill cows and sheep but not kill whales? Underneath it says, teach your kids how to think, not what to think. It's an ad for ethics in schools. Here's, uh, here's what it says here about the next set of woes. Uh, verse, uh, uh, verse, 18, uh, sorry, verse, um, verse 20. What, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Of course kids don't need to hear about God's word in schools. It's a fairy tale, yeah? By someone's imaginary fairy in the sky. We need to stop that. It's evil. Instead, we need to enthrone human logic and say that that'll save us. Because people thinking on their own always led to a better world, didn't it? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, is what it says. And then you've got in verse 18 another group... Uh, I'll skip that, another group called the Skeptics. This is apparently the Skeptics magazine. At one level, I don't mind Skeptics. Um, it's okay not to just swallow everything without concern. But here's a group of people who've decided in advance there is no God. And uh, here's, here's what these sort of people might say. Have a look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. It's a little bit like the people at the, at the cross. Do you remember Jesus hanging on the cross? And there's a group of people standing in front of him saying, hey, if you really are the Messiah, 
Why don't you save yourself? And there's some people on the cross going, why don't you save yourself and us? If you really are God, get on with it. Show us. Prove it. We'll believe you if you come down. And what they miss is the fact that God is achieving his greatest victory in what looks like his biggest loss. The sceptics, those who are wise in their own eyes, woe to them is what it says. The sceptic and the smart, I use that in inverted commas, by the way, in church you're welcome to be smart. Uh, You don't have to check your brain at the door. But the sceptics and those who are smart in their own eyes will be swept away by the God they don't believe in. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like the dust. For, what's their problem? For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. What was their problem? They decided that God's word was dispensable. I can be wise without it. I don't need it. I have no place for it. And God says, well, you'll go into exile. You'll lose the promised land and you'll die. The God you reject will judge you. You know, we heard that, uh, that bit from, uh, from Matthew 21 about the vineyard. Jesus uses a story about a vineyard. And if you knew the story of the vineyard like we've now known it, you would be thinking when Jesus started talking about it, there was a man who had a vineyard. You'd be thinking, oh, Isaiah 5, that didn't work out very well for those people. And in the story, you heard it beautifully read for us uh, by Janine. In the story... It goes on and on and on as the owner of the vineyard asks the people who are looking after the vineyard, give me some respect. Eventually, they kill all the people who ask until the king sends a son. And he says, surely they'll respect my son. But the owners of the vineyard say, if we kill him, we'll own the vineyard. And so they do. The people in the Old Testament were judged for rejecting the word of God. In Jesus' parable, we see that people become an enemy of the owner by rejecting the son. If you reject the son, you will become an enemy of the owner of the vineyard. The ultimate sin is to reject the owner of the vineyard by rejecting his son, Jesus. I want you to see just at the end here what happens. Uh, In verse 26... It's, oh, so verse, end verse 25, it says, Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is still upraised. At this point you go, really? What? How can there be anything left? How come his anger isn't satisfied? It says he lifts up a banner for distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. So, so what's going to happen, guys, is God saying, I am going to call, I'm going to call people from the ends of the earth and they're going to come to this country and they're going to devastate it. That's what's going to happen. And do you know what the tragedy is? If you hang around in this series, I know you might not come back next week after this one, but if you hang around in this series, here's what's going to happen. At the end of the book, God's going to call for the nations and do you know what they're going to do? They're going to come to Israel. Do you know why they're going to come? They're going to come to praise and honour and worship God. But before we get to that beautiful conclusion, we have to see the faithless Israel gets judged. Well, all of that is okay, but I have a bit of an application conundrum. Like, what that means is I banged my head on my desk a little this week. No, that wasn't what happened. Here's here's the application conundrum. Let me tell you just very quickly. 
Here's the thing. We live in Australia, correct? It's good. Good so far. I know that everyone's now on board with the sermon, so that's good. Um, we live in Australia. We don't live in Israel. Is that right? Okay. So the, the, this bit of the Bible is written to Israel two and a half thousand years ago. More. So how do I apply it? We, we live in Australia, not in Israel. On top of that, let, let's think a little bit more. The people of God today actually aren't the nation of Israel. Controversial thing to say, but there it is. The people of God today are not the nation, not the, the, the geographical political entity called Israel. That's not the people of God today. Who's the people of God today? We believe in one holy, catholic and apostolic Oh, some of you are paying attention, that's good. So the answer is church, okay? We, we, we believe in the church. So the church are the people of God. That's pretty good. You're a part of it, I'm a part of it. There are people meeting in Israel who are the people of God because they're part of God's church. And there are people in, in, in uh, Rome and, and also in America, Papua New Guinea, France. The people of God today is the church. Brilliant. The church, however, is not a nation. Are we okay with that? That's good. So the church is not a nation. So as we're trying to think about this, this is written to the nation of Israel as the people of God. Let's think about the application then. We end up being then a people of God in the nation of Australia, which is a democracy. Everyone with me so far? So what that means is, last time you checked, Matt and I aren't ruling the country, which is very helpful for everyone. Um, we're not in charge. And actually, we don't know for sure who's in charge at the moment, do we, everyone? That's a political joke. Very good, good. Yeah, good to see we're still connecting here. Okay, so here's the thing. So if we were to say, oh, nation, you are filled with injustice and unrighteousness, right? At one level, we could say that to our nation, couldn't we? There is injustice in our nation, is that correct? Okay, there's unrighteousness in our nation, is that correct? Absolutely it is. But here's the thing. Is our nation the people of God? No, it's, it, our, our nation isn't the people of God. We're a group of people who are the people of God inside our nation. It just becomes a little bit more difficult. Are you with me? Okay, so what should we do in response to this strong call from Isaiah to care in accord with God's heart for justice and righteousness, things that were missing in the land? They had exchanged righteousness for riot, decency for despair. There was bloodshed and bribery. What should we do? How are we to be fruitful? We've got a plan for that, apparently. Which is good. You might have heard it before. We're trying to live new life for Jesus by being faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. Let me see if I can apply that. Let me think if I can apply that. Here's the thing. How will I ever do what God wants if I don't know his heart? See, when I start loving someone, I don't say, oh, I love you, I, I'm not going to spend any time with you. I love you, I'm not concerned about what you say. That doesn't follow, does it? Keep talking, tell me stories, we want to hang out, let's spend time. Can I tell you, if you want to get in accord with the heart of God, you need to spend time with God and you need to hear from Him. We have a new reading plan. We have a new reading plan. Uh, if you're reading the Bible every day on your own, don't worry about this, throw it in the bin, ignore it. I suspect that's not all of you. If you're not reading from God's word, I'm challenging you to say you cannot know his heart. 
and your heart will not beat in accord with his. You won't weep over the things he weeps for. You won't be concerned for the things he's just concerned about if you're not reading his word. So I'm saying, dig in. Grab one of these. There's a stack of them at the back. Start reading. Chapter a day. Doesn't take very long. It'll start getting you towards God's heart. Step one, being faithful. Step two, uh, hands of prayer. Here's the thing. Under adventurous, we say, what are you praying for that only God can do? What are you praying for that only God can do? As we look at our nation, there are significant challenges, aren't there? The answers will lie in us as the people of God stepping up. But if we step up without prayer, without finding accord with God's heart, if we don't ask him to go before us, nothing will change. How will we have justice for refugees, for instance, in this country? Let's ask the Lord. Let's pray. Be compassionate. How are we hearing God's love for the least? Well, a while ago, we did a collection for uh, simple love. It's a very practical, easy, basic thing to do. Get together to see what practical things you can do to start redressing injustice in our world. This is a very simple one. You might like to do it in your life groups. We're going to have a couple of collections again this year um, for that. Find ways to be practically compassionate, to show justice at a practical level. And lastly, when it comes to the unrighteousness one, it's a funny thing. At some level, we can have two problems. Problem number one, um, I can let myself off my own sin. Right? So the problem with unrighteousness in the world actually starts right here. Do I care about my sin? Do you care about yours? Incidentally, prayer and reading will help us find that care. But secondly, here's the thing. If I don't care about mine... There'll be two responses from people. One is, I'll care very much about your sin because it helps me feel better about ignoring mine. So what we do as a church, we, we can have the tendency to be finger pointers at all the things that are wrong in the world and we'll make loud cries and, and rendered rend hearts about the unrighteousness in the world around us. I think that would be a mistake if we're not broken in our own hearts about our own sinfulness. Second possible response is we could start to care about sin in the lives of others that are close to us. I think this is really challenging. I think this is really challenging. Under enduring, one of the questions that we ask one another is, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Who knows you well enough to ask this question? It's a tough question. But if I don't care enough about you, how will we corporately become more righteous? It's not just that each one of us needs to work harder. Please work harder, by the way. Please work harder. But what if we're encouraging one another to be a holy people? So what I want to suggest to you as my fourth point of application is that we would do better to catch up more with one another in our life groups and outside of them and actually ask the real questions, how are you doing? What could I be praying for for you that you're struggling with? Because I care for your personal holiness. That'd be a revolution, wouldn't it? Will we love the Lord? Will you and I love the Lord 
and value the things of his heart, that if we were asked to stand and sing, we might truly be able to sing of the one we love, seeing the world in the way that he sees it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this challenging word today. I pray that you would help us not to take our own sin lightly. I pray, Father, that we would see the anger in your heart towards the injustice and unrighteousness of your people. And that as your church, your holy people, we might pursue justice. We might seek righteousness. And we might do it because we love and seek and lift up you as our holy God, the one we love. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.